Psychic Self-Defense, Part 4 The Principle of Charity Where do our thoughts come from? How much of the inner monologue that rolls around our mind all day comes from our own observations and interactions with the real world? Or how much of it comes directly from the media we consume? The news we watch or listen to? The articles we read or the videos we watch on YouTube? We can form our own opinions based on what we see happening in front of us and how it affects us on an emotional level, but we can also just take it directly from what we're told, if the language is emotive and convincing enough. We can take it into our subconscious mind and repeat it later on in our own voice, completely unaware that it's been put in our minds by somebody else. In the last two parts, I focused heavily on the mechanics of argument, using Carl Sagan's list of logical fallacies as a guide and then I spent some time on ideological critique. I talked a lot about the difference between critique and criticism, what we use each for. Now what was the point in doing that? It's important for us to be able to identify bad arguments, to protect ourselves from nonsense, of course, but thinking critically doesn't just mean thinking about how to find flaws in the reasoning of another person. It also, and maybe more importantly, means having an understanding of how you think and why you think that way and understanding why the other person thinks the way they do. For this episode, I'm going to focus on the principle of charity. The principle of charity essentially means setting aside our preconceived notions about the person we're engaging with, putting our own beliefs aside temporarily and taking their opinion on its own terms. We try our best to fully understand what's being said before we go looking for inconsistencies in the argument. We reserve critique and criticism until after we've adequately understood what they're saying, actively listened and asked good questions. It involves active listening, which means we don't just judge the person based on the first few sentences. We instead listen intently to all they have to say before we formulate a response. It's an exercise in imagination and empathy where we translate what they're saying into terms that make sense to us, temporarily provisionally suspending your beliefs in order to seek understanding. We might really want to disagree, but we temporarily tolerate the ambiguity, aiming to understand what's being said, because it might be useful, and there might be some truth in it. There's a chance that behind the initial idea, the initial spark of conflict, there could be some common ground, some common fear or common problem that we could instead try to tackle together. The principle is based on the idea that arguments should aim at finding the truth, not at winning the fight. That arguments are an opportunity to learn. I haven't always been approaching things that way with these podcasts. I often refer to the likes of Mercola or the right-wingers as opponents, and that doesn't exactly fit in with the principle of charity. But it makes sense that I would think that way. Remember in part one I talked about Jonathan Haidt's study on human morality, where he proposed that our rational mind evolved not to find the truth, but to justify our opinions, opinions that we come to through emotion. If this is true, and I think it is, then that means it's very challenging for us to apply the principle of charity. If I find myself arguing with someone over immigration, for example, it feels wrong to actively engage with what they're saying because I might fear that my mind will be changed, that I will become the racist that I see in them. I don't want to give in to what I consider a horrible worldview. But why do I have that fear? 
Why do I fear losing or giving in? Why do I think that would be even possible? If I know I'm right, then I should have nothing to fear about engaging with someone who has an opposing view. But there's another reason I find this difficult, and it's not just that I fear losing face. When it comes to that, that example, the discussion about immigration, that directly affects people I know and care about. It affects neighbours, work colleagues, friends. Likewise, if we're talking about, I don't know, trans rights, queer rights, hate speech, housing crisis, it can be very difficult to have an unemotional conversation about those topics because they directly affect people I care about or they directly affect me. Often, people who find it easy to have a calm, detached conversation about those topics are people that are comfortable enough not to have to worry about any of them. They can talk about it in the abstract because it doesn't really come into their personal life. In other words, there's a level of privilege involved in being able to talk about this stuff in a detached way. The fact that I'm even able to use the topic of immigration as an example here is a clue to the fact that I personally have never had to worry about that because I have always lived in the country I was born in. At the other end of the spectrum then, some of us can't attach ourselves emotionally because it's real life. The principle of charity can help move through these differences but it only works if both people in the conversation are applying it. Truth is beauty! Beauty, truth, sir! <gasps> They're discussing poetry! Oh, we never do that at my school. But the truth can be harsh and disturbing! How can that be considered beautiful? One piece of critical feedback I've gotten so far about these podcasts is that when I say emotions are facts, maybe that's dodgy territory. Emotions are real, but are they really facts? In the same way that my body needs oxygen to survive is a fact, or there's currently X number of people sleeping rough in Dublin. A better way of putting it might be that emotions frame facts. Emotions affect how a fact is presented and how it is received. Facts are always embedded in emotion. Think about the street you live on, or a street you travel down frequently. It might seem mostly the same most of the time, but you'll see it very differently if you walk down it, or run down it, or cycle, or drive. You'll see different details in one state and not in the other. All have their benefits, and each one has its downsides. Emotions have a similar effect on facts. We'll have a different experience of a fact depending on our emotional state when we're presented with it. People can use real, cold facts to back up a point they're making, and just because the fact is true doesn't necessarily mean that their opinion is. It might not be relevant, or it might have been taken out of context. On the other hand, we might be misunderstanding them, missing out on the perspective they have because of our own emotional state. The fact might be uncomfortable for us because it challenges some of our fundamental assumptions. If we keep an awareness of what's going on with us emotionally and really engage with what the other person is saying, we'll be in a better position to know if it's right or wrong, whether the statement is factual or whether it's relevant to the argument. If we want to meet in the middle and really hear each other. It takes patience, respect and understanding and both people have to enter into the conversation with that. It's made very difficult to apply the principle of charity if the other person isn't applying it as well. It's not impossible, it's just very hard. We can prepare ourselves mentally for this, for having difficult conversations with people, by first reading, watching or listening to work by people we don't agree with bearing in mind the basic tenets of the principle that we assume their view is based on reality and that they believe they are good and doing the right thing 
remembering that we're reading or watching or listening because we want to find the truth, not because we want to see how wrong they are. Obviously, in this case, there won't be any interaction, so there's no opportunity for them to hear you. But it does mean it's easier for you to pay attention to what's going on inside you and to pay attention to your own reactions internally, to observe your own emotional response to what you're reading. It's difficult for us to do this, to read or listen to opinions that we find horrible, to free our minds from our beliefs, beliefs that we are conditioned to hold on to. We're all kind of brainwashed. Every time we read or listen to something that backs up our own worldview, we're conditioning ourselves to maintain that worldview. So it's hard, but it's essential to enable understanding of unfamiliar ideas. Understanding does not mean accepting, but it allows us to be honest enough with ourselves to ask the question, am I angry because the idea is horrible or is it just because it's new and scary? So, in the spirit of the principle, I'm going to go and read an article by someone I deeply disagree with, someone who is about as far away from me on the political spectrum as you possibly can be. I went looking in places that I wouldn't normally frequent, and I found an article by none other than conspiracy theorist and far-right pseudo-intellectual John Waters. Right? Now, not the film director John Waters, who made Crybaby and all that. Filth are my politics. Filth is my life. Uh, the, the, the journalist John Waters. Uh, it's an article about immigration, immigration into Ireland, and I found it on a website of a far-right political group that I have absolutely no trust in, and, to be honest, no respect for. I'm not going to try and summarise the article here or to critique it, because that's not the point. I'm going to go away and read it, and then come back to the mic and try to talk through my response to it, to see if there was any common ground to be found. The first large-scale commercial broadcasting on the Earth was in the late 1940s. so that's, what, uh, 40 years ago. So you must imagine a spherical wave expanding out from the Earth at the velocity of light, which contains all the dreary programs of the late 1940s. Since then, that expanding, expanding spherical wave containing the uh, news of a developing civilization on Earth has traveled some 40 light years. Suppose that there are no civilizations closer than 40 light years. Perhaps they're not here because they don't know we are about just yet. But uh, in time, the message gets to them. And uh, perhaps they uh, send a little expedition to look us over. In this article, John Waters outlines his many fears about African migration into Europe, specifically African migration. The summary of it is he's, he basically thinks there's too many Africans coming to Europe and he's arguing for much stricter and harsher border controls than we already have. He, he claims that the EU, despite all evidence to the contrary, he claims that European countries are actively encouraging inward migration and that this will be catastrophic for us and for them, the migrants. He's very keen on the categories of us and them. He sees them as totally irreconcilable. There's us here and there's them over there and we're never going to see eye to eye. That's kind of the the the, the thrust of the whole article, basically. After reading it and noting my responses, I spent far too long critiquing it. 
and then thought hang on that's not this isn't the point like this isn't why i'm doing this episode i'm doing this episode to talk about the principle of charity it's not about critiquing some racist but i kind of just couldn't help it i just sort of fell into doing it and then realized i'd gone off track altogether and had to start again it was really hard to resist that though because there's so much in the article so much important information left out so much taken out of context false information it was just very poorly constructed as well there was no chain of argument each each paragraph presented a different idea which he never fully qualified if you remember back in part one i was talking about carl sagan's baloney detection kit one of his rules for nonsense detection is that if there is a chain of argument every link in the chain has to make sense not just one of them or some of them if if even one link doesn't make sense then the whole argument falls apart and this one there was no chain of argument even and loads of it just didn't make sense but anyway that's not what i'm here to talk about I decided not to include it in the podcast because it was kind of a distraction from the point, which is to demonstrate the principle of charity. And that means keeping an awareness of my emotions and noting my responses, but really fully engaging with what's being said, or in this case written, and to take it as though he's coming from the heart. It was a challenge, but I was actually able to find some common ground with him. The synchronicity didn't last very long. But in the spirit of the principle, I'll focus on the good stuff. For now. In it, he is heavily critical of Western aid to Africa, saying that it's it's a necessary response to emergency situations, but as a long-term strategy, it doesn't work. I agree with him on this, and there's lots of critiques of aid as a strategy from an African perspective as well, and if you're interested in a critique of aid, I would definitely not recommend this article. You'd be better off hearing... The perspective of the affected party, in this case someone from the African continent. You can find many examples of this online from both left and right wing perspectives, just search for African perspectives on aid. You can do your own digging on that but I will share some links on the Turning Art blog. One person I would draw your attention to now though is Thomas Sankara who was a socialist and pan-Africanist leader of Burkina Faso until he was assassinated in the late 80s. Now he wasn't perfect, he was no angel, he was, he was an authoritarian leader who suppressed union activity amongst other things so he, he's no hero of mine. But his take, he was very critical of the likes of the IMF and the World Bank and he refused aid because he saw rightly that it came at a price. He would have to make his country and his people subordinate to the interests of the West. So he did his best to keep them out of his country, which worked pretty well. At least in some ways it worked well um, until he was killed and then all that work was undone. He understood that aid came at a cost and was ultimately bad for Burkina Faso and Africa more broadly. So basically, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go consulting John Waters about for a critique on aid. But still, you know, credit, credit where it's due, he was right about this. He writes that Western aid and the Western perspective is defined by Western needs, not African needs. So on that fundamental point, we agree. But he goes a very silly direction from here. He, write, he, he manages to write at length about what the West needs from Africa. From his perspective, it's the need to feel superior. And I think he's right about that as well. But he never mentions any of the natural resources that Western-owned companies are still extracting from Africa. He talks about colonialism and resource extraction as though it happened in the past and it's not happening anymore. And that's just not true. Or he doesn't mention at all that Western-led international institutions like the World Bank and the IMF are still controlling African economies through structural adjustment programs. He doesn't mention any of this stuff. Because that's just, yeah, talking about colonialism as, as though it's a thing of the past and resource extraction as though it's a thing of the past. He 
He basically says that Africa's issues are down to cultural problems. Now, you see here, I've already started criticising it again, and I'm, I'm getting angry thinking about it, um, which is again is not the point of the principle of charity. The point, the point of this is to is to try and take it in, kind of uh, as objectively as possible. But it's I can't really, in good conscience, ignore stuff like that because it is just it's in it's it really seems like he's deliberately withholding information in order to make a divisive, insulting, and hateful point. I find it difficult to believe that a man like him, who's clearly educated and clued in to global politics to some extent, is unaware of the massive amounts of resource extraction ongoing. Just off the top of my head, there's coltan and cobalt, two minerals used extensively in the components used to make smartphones and computers. They're, they're mined in the Congo, and there's massive environmental destruction and human rights abuses associated with them, and it's pretty much exclusively Western and Asian countries that benefit financially from them. You've got cocoa. Uh, the reason we have cheap chocolate here in Europe is that 80% of the world's cocoa was grown by slaves, including children, m- mainly in Madagascar. Uh, Somalia's fishing stocks are being hoovered up by European, Russian and Middle Eastern trawlers, not to mention the oil and gas extraction in the Niger Delta and other places. That's just ones I can think of off the cuff. And he can't be unaware of that stuff. Yet he chooses to ignore it and tries to make it seem like Africans leave Africa for some abstract cultural reasons. And it just seems like total nonsense. But... um, Because I've set up to read this charitably, I have to act as though his views are based on his perception of reality and that his heart is in the right place. Another point where we kind of sync up and I'm really clutching at straws here is a perspective on the double-edged sword of globalisation and communications technology. He's concerned that local values, customs and cultures are being swallowed up by a global monoculture. Even though he seems totally ignorant of the material reality of globalisation, he does talk about how consumer culture becoming global is bad for everyone, for us here in Ireland and for the people of Africa. And I'd agree with that fundamental point, you know, I think it's a fairly relatable worry for me personally anyway. I think there's a lot of great things about the spread of communication technology, you know, it's given us as people an awareness of ourselves as a global species. But there are lots of negative aspects as well, like the environmental degradation and the mental health degradation that happens when a society becomes more consumerist and people start valuing themselves by what they own and what they lack rather than what their own intrinsic worth is as a, as a human. He doesn't talk about any of that though, unfortunately. So we have this, this shared concern but a very, very different reaction to it. His, I believe, is deeply flawed and morally wrong, but because I'm trying to keep my opinions and my emotions and my own morality out of it, I'll try to state it and react to it as coldly and rationally as I can. He basically says that consumer culture spreading to Africa is bad because it gives them the idea to move outward and the material means to do so. To sum it up, he's afraid of being replaced, of white people being replaced by black people, which is a fairly typical racist argument that you hear a lot that our culture, our culture, will disappear because of immigration. Now that's nonsense obviously, I mean, I'm not going to get into it loads, but like, the British Empire couldn't erase Irish culture, and they sent armies specifically to do that, and they didn't manage it. So I don't think some people coming here to find work and live a more comfortable and secure life will do it. 
Um, but that that's the summary of it. You know, there's there's too many people leaving Africa because of Western aid and smartphones. Nothing to do with climate change or resource extraction because that's all in the past. So why we we have some of these shared fears? I was able to pick out like the, the spreading monoculture and consumer culture, uh, communications technology having been a double-edged sword, and rural depopulation. Uh, more people living in cities, less in the countryside, and that's bad for loads of reasons. We had some of these. His solution to this was to close the borders. That's the one kind of solution he puts forward. There's a lack of logic there. So regardless of the moral argument, I'm not going to get into the morals of it. It should be fairly obvious what my moral stance on it is, but I'm not going to get into that because that's not the point. The point is to put opinions aside. There's just quite simply a lack of logic there. That's a non sequitur. Uh, if you listen to part, part two, I think it was, you... Yeah, I went into what a non sequitur is there. It, 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 it means it doesn't follow. You say one thing to prove another thing, but there's no link between them. The whole article was basically a long, decoratively written non sequitur. Closing the borders to migrants will have no bearing on the spread of consumer or individualist culture. Because that stuff, because of free trade, that stuff spreads across borders anyway. His analysis of power is not to challenge the centres of power or the powerful, but to lord over those who, he al- who already have less power than he does conserve his own power. In the article, he claims that Irish people don't have a sense of their own post-colonial identity or colonial history, one that's shared with many Africans, especially Nigerians who are colonised by the same empire we were. I think he's completely wrong about that. Most people I know are keenly aware of their history, and there's people coming up now in Ireland who grew up in Ireland but who came originally from Nigeria or other parts of Africa or who have parents from there who most definitely have an understanding of that shared past and I think what they have to say is a lot more interesting and enlivening than Anton Waters spot down in this piece. For example, check out Emma de Beery's article in the Dublin Enquirer called Turning Dubliners into Pan-Africanists. She gets into this stuff in a much more forward-thinking way than Waters does. I think it's fair to say at this point and most of you would probably have come to this conclusion already, but I'm not doing a very good job of demonstrating the principle of charity. Uh, Or rather, I suppose I picked a bad example to start with. I mean, I opened up this section with a criticism of his argument, so this this is a terrible demonstration, really. But I couldn't honestly state his ideas coldly without commenting on how illogical they are and how hateful they are, really. Um, There's just too wide a gulf between my morality and this guy's morality for me to be able to read it without picking it apart. I said at the start of this that the point of the principle of charity is not just to see where we agree, but to be open to learning something new, and that interacting with ideas we perceive as wrong is essential to enable understanding of the unfamiliar. But to be honest, there wasn't anything new or unfamiliar in this article. The arguments were the same, typically racist arguments that you would expect from a far-right thinker. Although I read this article with a, a genuine openness to having my own mind changed, um, that didn't happen. But because I read it from a detached, charitable perspective, I was able to pick up on some shared concerns. There was just too much deception and fear-mongering in it for me to let it slide. The principle really only works if it's applied both ways, if the person you're engaging with is applying it as well. But that doesn't seem like the case here. But. Because I approached the article like this, I was able to detach my emotional response from my analysis of it, and I was even able to find some sensible arguments in it. Emotions will frame how facts are perceived, and I can't honestly say I was able to detach completely, but the effort definitely changed how I read it. For example, he brings up the point that a lot of jobs that migrants would be hired for here 
are likely going to disappear to automation over the coming decades. That's a genuine enough concern based on a real analysis of the world. But that's true regardless of how many people migrate here or how many people don't. Job losses to automation are already a worry. Remember though, facts can also be used dishonestly to back up a point that is ultimately pure cowshite. In this case, the fact isn't exactly relevant because regardless of migration, it's a problem that needs to be addressed anyway. It's like saying we can't let any more cars drive down this road because there's a pothole there. Well, like, we just need to fix the fucking pothole. It doesn't matter how many cars are driving down the road. The point of engaging with this stuff, though, isn't to try to convince John Waters or people like him to change their minds. But it's to try and understand them and to make sure that he doesn't change anyone else's mind. There's plenty of people out there who might have worries like he does, similar worries, but they haven't spiralled as far as he has yet. Fears I identified in reading this were the fear of loss, the fear of chaos, the fear of scarcity. That's the big one. The key difference though is he wants you to blame foreigners for what you don't have. Because that's easier than actually challenging the powerful and finding a real solution to the problems of scarcity. He's unable to engage with that though, and there's many signs of that throughout the article. The first indication came pretty early on where he dismisses what he calls Christian compassion and leftist notions of equality and redistribution. He writes that compassion is an ego trip and equality is all about entitlement. How quickly he was able to completely dismiss compassionate spiritual and left-wing values as an ego trip suggests to me that he did not write this article in good faith. If he is familiar with the principle of charity he was either choosing not to apply it because he wants to defame his opponents or because he was too caught up in his own emotions to be able to apply it. This piece illustrates the difficulties of applying the principle. If you apply it to someone who isn't also following it, you're basically opening yourself up for punishment. I and people like me were just completely written off in one short sentence. He's closed to the possibility that someone can act compassionately out of a genuine desire to help other people. Now you could maybe argue that I have written him off or defamed him and people like him several times in this podcast by referring to him as a racist. I would respond to that criticism by pointing out one of the many lies he tells in this article in order to justify his otherwise inexplicable focus on African people. He lies several times about migrant statistics, claiming that Central Africans are the largest cohort of non-EU migrants in Ireland, which is completely untrue. You can check the Central Statistics Office website to confirm that for yourself. Lying is a common tactic used by the far right to whip up fear about migration. We've seen it recently with several unrelated house fires which were proven to be accidental being attributed to foreign nationals or black gangs with completely fabricated stories circulating on social media. So I don't use the word race for no reason. If in the article he provided any other explanation for why he focuses in particular on African people I would be able to reconsider. But he never did. So I can't ignore the obvious. To summarise my emotional response to the article, what came up for me was anger, frustration and sadness. Sadness because it's clear from reading it that he's really scared and doesn't have a very clear analysis of the world. As I read it though, I grew a lot more sceptical. And like, it's, like, you can't ignore the fact that this was on the website of the political organisation, so it, 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 he's clearly not coming from a place of complete ignorance. It's this. This is intentional. He, he, the way he sequences arguments, the way all the different points were set up, there was no logical flow. He was just jumping from fearful scenario to fearful scenario in a kind of sinister tone. And I, I suppose I was angry because 
what I can see in the article is an unwillingness to seek harmony, an unwillingness to find understanding. Um, and when you come up against that, there's kind of only so much you can do. The principle of charity isn't going to take me any further here. And frustration, because I, I suppose I'm frustrated that I still have to read stuff like this. It's the 21st fucking century. Like, can we not start having a more mature conversation at this stage? Um, yeah, I wouldn't. I would not recommend reading this article. And I don't know. Maybe I jumped in at the deep end here, trying to demonstrate the principle of charity by reading John Waters. I, I don't even know if this is useful, but um, I don't regret reading it. And I think it's it's good practice to read stuff that you deeply disagree with. So yeah, although I wouldn't recommend that you read that article, I would recommend that you try this yourself. Like try, find someone that you you know you're going to disagree with, and try to read them with an openness to see what you pick up on. Um, but maybe try to find someone who's a bit less of a buzz record than John Waters is. Yeah, you might have more success. I might revisit this at some stage, actually. Uh, with someone who isn't as far away from me politically. I don't know. Yeah, I think most of you probably didn't need me to do any deep digging here to reveal to you that yes, John Waters is in fact a bigot. Um, at some of the more frustrating moments here did feel like a bit of a waste of time, but ultimately I think it was worth doing. It's a good mental challenge to read and fully pay attention to people that are across the political spectrum. Wouldn't do it all the time because there's many more people writing much more interesting stuff to get your head around, but it's a good exercise. It's not nice, but it's worthwhile to try and see what, what are the fears that are motivating, in this case, far-right activists. A core principle and requirement of a fulfilled human being is the ability to inquire and create constructively, independently, uh, without external controls. It's not important what we cover in the class, it's important what you discover. Uh, to be truly educated from this point of view means to be in a position to inquire and create, uh, to know where to look, to know how to form, formulate serious questions, to uh, question a pr um, standard doctrine. I started this series because I wanted to confront the misinformation and conspiratorial scaremongering about the coronavirus by exploring some tools for scientific and critical thinking. So this part might seem a little bit out of step with the rest of the series. I was originally going to try and find an article about masks or vaccines and try and read that charitably, but I kept coming back to this one. The reason for this is that, as most of you are probably aware, there have been consistent anti-lockdown and anti-mask protests in Dublin since the pandemic started. Those protests appear to be led mostly by far-right political activists, of which John Waters is an example. Not everyone who attends those demos are far-right. Most of them just don't trust the government, which is fair enough as far as I'm concerned. But the leadership are. Some of the groups who have led marches and demos are upfront about their fascist beliefs. They want to turn Ireland into a Catholic dictatorship, a white-only state where only heterosexuals feel safe. They are openly hostile to queer, LGBT people, trans people, people of colour, immigrants, leftists, and essentially anyone who isn't exactly like they are. They're totally dominated by their own fear of the unfamiliar. Think about that word, unfamiliar, not family, outside the family. Distrust of anyone outside the tribal group. This behavioural tendency in humans, my favourite member of the primate family, 
goes well back in our history. It doesn't take much for us to fear the unknown human, because our brains have not changed that much in the last few thousand years. The far right exploit that fearful tendency and turn it into a political ideal. Fascism is not a group of people, it's a group of ideas, it's an ideology. These ideas can take hold in any group, in any society. The principle of charity, I believe, is the right place to start. I think we should always do our best to enter into argument with that in mind and to try and find the middle ground. But that does not mean that we have to leave intolerable views unchallenged. If someone's waving a banner in the street and shouting at you to take off your mask, or if they're posting videos on YouTube saying that all leftists are paedophiles out to get your children, which is a real video posted by an Irish man on YouTube with thousands of views, or if they're seriously arguing that the guards were morally justified in murdering a young man who is in the middle of a mental health crisis, then it might be too late to apply the principle of charity to them. But if you're in conversation with someone and they say they're suspicious of the reality of the virus or they're sceptical about mask wearing, or even if they're worried that there might be too many immigrants coming to Ireland, that's the ideal time. It can be very, very hard, but both people will benefit more if they're able to apply the principle of charity. It's even harder in the current moment, where the business models of Facebook, Twitter and Google have actively worked to shield us from the humanity of the people we don't agree with, and only show us the stuff that makes us angry, the little sound bites on the most controversial topics. I recorded the first three parts of the series before the anti-lockdown demos really started growing, and before far-right activists started to take advantage of them before the County Leitrim LGBT activist Izzy Kamikaze was beaten over the head by anti-mask fascists outside the doll. You can't apply the principle of charity to a man who wraps a piece of 2x4 in the tricolour and uses it as a weapon against people they don't agree with. You can't apply the principle of charity to people who are actively trying to demonise you and people like you. The same men who attacked Izzy at the demo later on that night were roaming the streets attacking other people, including a friend of mine who was just hanging out with their friends in the street. There is a small but growing fascist movement in this country and we need to be prepared to defend ourselves and our communities from it. So basically, there's a time and a place for the principle of charity. If things have gotten to the point where people are being physically attacked, then we need to move from psychic self-defence to physical self-defence. But before that, if we're just talking with someone face to face and we come up against these opinions that seem wrong to us, the principle of charity can help to keep the conversation going. If you can reframe what they're saying, looking at it with empathy rather than fear or anger. This can have a de-escalating effect, creating a calm conversational environment and hopefully avoid the need for confrontation in the streets. Beware of the dark side, anger, fear, aggression, the dark side of the force I Being able to recognise the fears that are at the core of someone's worldview can help us understand how to change their minds. But it also changes our minds a little. It can deepen our understanding of the spectrum of humanity. It can make us look more closely at our own core ethics to know what are the principles that are guiding our own actions and what emotions are at their base. Being able to listen to the arguments of the far right and to seriously talk about them and to engage with them doesn't mean that I agree with them. The joy of discovering this stuff is that they're real. They're real fears. Fears that lots of people have, not just the far right. If you can show people that there's ways of solving those fears, then maybe they'll be less likely to scapegoat people that are unfamiliar to them, be they a foreigner, a queer, trans person, or someone who prays to the same God as them but just prefers a different prophet. 
it's easier. It's a lot easier to just blame a group of people than to try and solve the complicated problems that are making the world a needlessly hostile place for most of us. Any of us are capable of this way of thinking because we're all primates. We're not stupid, but we are easily guided by fear. And as such, we need to be prepared to resist the politics of fear. Physically, when it threatens us. Mentally, when it preys on us. In other people and in ourselves. Inside our minds and in the pits of our stomachs. That's it for this episode. I hope that made some amount of sense and it wasn't too ranty. Before I go, I'd like to pass the hat around. The podcast now has two patrons, and if you'd like to join their illustrious ranks, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash turning earth. I hope to move back into a shared studio at some point this year, so your patronage will help cover those costs. I also want to get back to doing interviews at some point, so I'd, I'd be trying to raise funds for a better field recorder and more appropriate microphones. So if you're in a position to make a one-off donation towards that, you can do that at coffee.com forward slash turning earth. That's ko-fi.com forward slash turning earth. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks to everyone who has listened so far and given me critical feedback. Thanks to Gareth for the illustrations and Glueshock 2 are, as always, covering the hosting costs. If you enjoyed this, please spread the word, subscribe, leave a review, all that crack. Good luck for now.